oh, I cannulated ECMO yesterday, let me call the psychologist, isn't always people's first thought. Welcome back to Pete's Grit. I'm Zach Hodges, a pediatric ICU fellow from UT Southwestern in Dallas. And I'm Alice Shanklin, a pediatric critical care fellow at Children's National in Washington, D.C. Zach, what are we talking about today? Today is part three of our VV ECMO deep dive. In this series, we span the entire VV ECMO course from the decision to cannulate to higher level mobilization protocols like extubating the patient while they're still in the pump. Yes. And we are so lucky that we're not just talking about the PICU here. We've recruited both Jenna Miller, who's a pediatric intensivist, and John Daniel, a neonatologist. So make sure we really span the full age spectrum. That's right. Dr. Jenna Miller is an associate professor of pediatrics at the University of Missouri-Kansas City School of Medicine. She currently is the director of the Pediatric ECMO Program and the Pediatric Critical Care Fellowship at Children's Mercy Kansas City. And Dr. John Daniel is an associate professor of pediatrics at the University of Missouri-Kansas City School of Medicine. He is a practicing neonatal cardiac intensivist and the director of the neonatal ECMO program at Children's Mercy Kansas City. That's right. Let's go ahead and jump right in. There's also a pump involved, though, and we haven't talked about the ECMO pump or the circuit very much at all. I know there's FiO2, there's sweep, there's big tubes and stuff. What circuit variables do we need to be aware of and know about? So as you mentioned, there's the FiO2 and the sweep, and for our VV patients, those are really critical to look at every day, right? So we're going to have an FiO2 and probably some ventilation occurring, or maybe not, on the ventilator side, but we are keeping those very minimal on purpose. So really, the lion's share of the work to maintain biochemically stable gas exchange is happening on the circuit side. So every day you're going to want to look at what's my FiO2 set at, what is my sweep set at, and so... On the circuit side, it may be anywhere from room air up to 100%. 100% really taxes the oxygenator, so most of the time we would want it to be less than that and be able to support the patient with less FiO2 than 100% on the circuit and only use that for kind of times of urgency or emergency. And then as far as the sweep goes, most circuits, the max sweep is 10 so you'd be anywhere from 0.5 up to 10. The higher the sweep, the worse your ventilation defect. And so you're going to want to look at those numbers every day, multiple times a day, and see how they change. Because as your patient wakes up and moves around, those are going to change more frequently. And then the other components of the circuit that are important for us to look at are really the different pressure monitoring. These are called different things on different circuits and in different institutions. So it's really important to actually just understand what the fundamentals of those pressures are doing and not necessarily learn the name, which obviously you'll wanna learn the name of what your circuit in your institution is doing, but it will change based on what pump you have and what institution you're in. So there's really three big important pressure monitoring. One is called either the inlet pressure, the venous pressure, sometimes people call it a P1, a PN, there's so many different names. And so what that is measuring is the pressure difference between the patient and the pump. And so that is the force that it's taking to pull out your desired ECMO flow from your patient to your pump. And so the size of your tubing, the size of your cannula, and your hydration status of the total circuit are really the biggest drivers of what that pressure is going to be. And so each cannula has a certain amount of pressure drop that it tells you just in the notebook. So that's often where the specialist will get their reference of where to set the pump for that pressure. 
The second pressure is sometimes called P2, sometimes on the new spectrum pumps, it can be called P out. And so this is the pressure that the system is measuring after your pump before your oxygenator. So it can give you a sense of back resistance from the pump to your patient. So are there any kinks? Are there any areas that are providing increased resistance, such as perhaps your oxygenator or other pieces of your circuit? And then your third pressure, which is after your oxygenator, sometimes called P-ART on a spectrum circuit, called a P3 on some older circuits. The difference between your second pressure and your third pressure, or your P2, your P3, is sometimes called a delta P, sometimes called a transmembrane pressure. And that pressure is telling you about the health of your oxygenator. So what is the resistance to flow in your oxygenator? And so the difference between those two pressures is something that you want to watch every day when you're on rounds as well. So you may have a starting pressure that gives you a little bit of a baseline for that circuit, depending upon the size of your oxygenator, your blood flow, and a couple of other characteristics, that number is a little bit variable, but you want to watch for is the trend. So if that number starts to rise or increase, then you want to start paying attention to that and potentially bringing in your plasma-free hemoglobin as well to start thinking about how your oxygenator is doing. So if those numbers rise 50, 100, higher than 100, you want to be on alert and be talking to your ECMO specialist about whether or not you might need a new oxygenator or depending upon your system at your institution, you may change out the entire circuit. So those are the three different pressure monitors that you're going to be looking at and that you're going to be troubleshooting throughout the entirety of your patient's run. Just a couple of clarifying questions. Let's say the patient was dehydrated mm-hmm. or bleeding. What, what, what would change in the pressures? So you would see a more negative inlet pressure or P1 or venous pressure, depending upon what you call it. And so that will become more negative. That will alarm. And so If you're giving your patient big slugs of intermittent Lasix doses, you may see that because especially for patients who are diuretic naive, they may dump two, three, four, 500 cc's. And while that's probably fine when they're not on ECMO, the circuit feels that. And so you may see them have more negative pressures. Same thing as you mentioned with bleeding. So I've had a patient in hemorrhagic shock on pump and the P1s just constantly alarmed. P1s, inlet pressure, venous pressure, Mm -hmm. constantly alarmed until we were able to resuscitate the patient. So those are common reasons that that will alarm. And sometimes our ECMO specialists, maybe several days into the run, they'll start telling me, hey, the delta pressure is increasing. What do they actually say? So the delta pressure, the transmembrane pressure is also what it's called. And so it's looking at the pressure change across the oxygenator. So in the oxygenator, there's all these filaments and fibers, and we have rapid blood flow going through there. You think about over time, your red blood cells, your white blood cells, maybe medications, maybe other blood products get stuck in the oxygenator. And so they start causing impedance to flow. And so if you have impedance to flow, you have a bigger pressure change across the oxygenator. So what they're telling you is the oxygenator is becoming a bit unhappy. And there may be a reason in the near future or maybe farther future where the oxygenator needs to be changed out. So that's one marker of oxygenator health. Another one is looking at plasma-free hemoglobins and seeing how much really lysis of your hemoglobin you're having. And that could be an indicator of where your oxygenator is at. Taking one transmembrane pressure and one plasma-free hemoglobin in isolation usually isn't very helpful. But looking at them sequentially and serially and seeing are they consistently high or getting higher 
and then watching your pump PAO2s. And normally if your PO2 that you're, or your FIO2 that you're giving the pump is 50, 60, 70, 80%, you should have a really high PAO2 in the pump. If you see that start to come down, that's another indicator that your oxygenator is starting to fail. Let me give you a clinical scenario that's probably not uncommon in your neonates on VV. They've stabilized out, but now over the course of the day, the ECMO specialist is noticing that the saturations are actually a little bit lower and they're even matching the venous limb on the ECMO cannula. What do you think is going on here? How can we fix it? So that's a, that's a scenario of recirculation where basically your highly oxygenated blood is being sucked back into the cannula. So we think about this in terms of oxygen, your oxygen extraction ratio, your delivery and your consumption ratio. And so typically I think of your venous sat should probably be, you know, 25 to 30 points lower than your peripheral sat. That means the body is using 25% of the oxygen that's being delivered, which is about standard for normal oxygen consumption. And so when you start to see that your central venous saturation is starting to go up, it means you're having more highly oxygenated blood hit the sensor in the circuit. And when your peripheral sats are starting to go down, means you're not getting more oxygenated blood out into the periphery. And so if you look at a patient and you're like, gosh, my central venous sat is 85, my peripheral sat is 85, then you've got some recirculation going on. And so to fix that, maybe it'd be some positioning changes or something like that? Absolutely. It's it's the lovely game we play where you, you grab their head and kind of turn the head to one side and turn it to the other side or flex it or extend it. And that usually will fix it. Sometimes you got to reposition the cannula too, because you're maybe not hitting that tricuspid valve right away. So very practical. Do you use NEARS in your practice for these patients on ECMO? We have NEARS in the unit. And if I'm worried about a kiddo's perfusion, I will, I will throw some cerebral and flank NEARS on them. Mm-hmm. It gives you a lot of great information. The raw numbers that you get from the, the NEARS, I don't know how to interpret those of you know what that means. The trend is really what I look for. If you have a NEARS that starts to trend down or trend up, that tends to give you a better idea of, of their perfusion status. Looking at one number at a period of time doesn't tell me a whole lot. There are several studies out that are being done now looking at the use of NEARS in ECMO patients. So I think it's a great tool. My last ECMO technician specialist FAQ is, so, hey, I'm having to give back a little bit of CO2. What are they saying then? What, what's going on there? Yeah. So that means your patient is doing pretty great with their ventilation, right? So they have... If you're having to bleed in or give back CO2, then the patient themselves has enough ventilation that we're not really using the circuit for ventilation. So we don't really need a sweep. We're not sweeping any CO2 out of the patient. And the oxygenator is so efficient that if the patient is contributing a lot of ventilation on their own, then we may actually have to bleed back in some CO2 to keep it normal. Because we don't want to have a CO2 in the teens and 20s because we know that doesn't do great things for our cerebral vasculature. So we want to maintain at least a normal CO2 in the 30s and 40s. And if their lungs are ventilating well, the pump may have to add CO2 back in in order to maintain a normal CO2. Hmm. I do have a question while we're talking about sweep. We know that CO2 affects the cerebral vasculature as we start initiating sweep in these patients, do you have a mental framework for how slowly you are wanting to drop their CO2 levels? Great question. There's actually a new paper about that in neonates. And so if you have a patient whose CO2 has been sitting 80s, 90s, 100s for a period of hours to longer than hours, then their cerebral vasculature is now accustomed to that. So when I get on pump, 
I'd have a clear conversation with my ECMO specialist about what is my current pH and what is my CO2. And so what we try to do is really match that fairly closely or within kind of 10 to 20% because it's obviously not obvious up front what type of flow or sweep we're going to get right away when we get on pump. So just a ballpark of, okay, my pH is 7 right now. My CO2 is 90. Okay, for the first couple of hours, let's sit at a pH in the 7172 range and let's sit with a CO2 anywhere between 70 and 90. And then in the next couple hours, we start working our way towards a normal CO2 so that we don't shock the cerebral vasculature. And again, this is really important in neonates because we know that their blood-brain barriers and cerebral vasculature is not as resistant to big changes in blood flow and big changes in our ventilation. So it's really important for those babes, but it's good to have a kind of a standard practice. And and I will say that's my practice, what I just described to you, mm-hmm. but it's really not well defined, I don't think, in many places. And if someone comes to you and says, well, actually it is Dr. Miller, it's right here. I would love to see it. But um, there is definitely kind of more interest in in looking at what the outcomes are for patients who have their pH or their CO2 normalized immediately versus having a slower approach to normalizing those. And we think about reperfusion too, right? So those cells are metabolically starved and have a pH of seven. So again, kind of slowly normalizing those things as long as the patient hemodynamically tolerates it is worth thinking about. Absolutely. In these patients, you've gotten them on, you've stabilized their sweep, you're monitoring your oxygenator. This is a primary lung problem. How do you image the lungs or just sort of go in, make sure that you're able to open up, remove plugs, things like that? That's a really great question. And I think really important to think about in your early days. So we know that their lungs were terrible. We know that they couldn't exchange gas. We know that they needed ECMO. Okay. We may even know why we think that happened, but now how long are we going to be on this run? Are there things we can do to help progress the patient? And to understand that, I think it's really important to do a bronchoscopy and a CT in early days. And so why is that? So one, with a bronch, I think the evaluation of the airway is important. So as you mentioned, is the airway full of secretions and mucus and sloughing and really gross? And actually clearing that out, you start to see some air bronchograms on x-ray. And that's always very exciting for everyone when they look at the x-ray and they're like, there's air bronchograms. This is wonderful. So do you get in there with a bronch and you see that there's lots of debris and mucus to clear out and you can clear that out? That's really helpful. And then, you know, maybe some serial bronchs would be helpful to continue to look and to clear out that the airways in order to ensure that once those lungs and parenchymal space is, is ready to open up and ventilate, that they're able to. So I think that's very valuable in, like I said, the first 24 to 48 hours. I think a CT is helpful because oftentimes these patients are whited out, right? Either before they get on or after they get on. And so it's hard to see, is there something in there that's treatable, that's new? And so what do I mean by that? So is there an abscess? Is there a large effusion? On one occasion, we found gigantic pulmonary artery aneurysms. So what else is going on in there that is potentially going to complicate or contribute to your run, or that could be something that is treatable and helps the patient progress faster? And so both of these things are important early, but I also think they're important to monitor throughout the run, especially if you're on for weeks and weeks and weeks, because you may not see that stuff early, but you may develop those things later where it becomes something that you can clean out their airways, or there is something in the chest that is potentially modifiable. 
I will say you have to be very careful when you think about instrumenting the chest on ECMO and full anticoagulation. However, I do think it's important to know what's in there if it's not just all consolidated lung. So that'll be a contrast CT too, depending on how the patient is doing. Yes. So you're going to have to clamp them off ECMO to do that. So that's a fun thing to teach fellows how to do, I think. That also sounds like a niche protocol. That sounds like difficult, maybe. Difficult for me personally to do independently. You could do it. Just a little, little pre-oxygenation, right? Just a little pre-oxygenation, <laughs> clamp it off, and let's see how it goes. Have some epi on board. <laughs> right. I tell everyone, our job is not to panic. Mm, of course. So our That's job right. is to, as you said, pre-oxygenate on the patient side, on the circuit side, have a really quick radiology technician who knows what they're doing and is ready for you. Have an ECMO specialist at the pump who is quick and knows what they're doing and will get you on and off pump. The goal is like 30 seconds or less. And so we always have a physician there, usually the faculty member, but certainly a senior fellow can go and monitor that. And so, yes, you want to be ready for emergencies, but, but our goal is to not panic when we see the SATs drop and potentially the heart rate drop because we know we're going to get right back on pump in that short term window. Such a great little snapshot of the control chaos of pediatric critical care. So as we think about other parts of the medical care of this patient, they're going to need nutrition. They're going to need sedation. What are your general strategies in those first couple of days as you're getting the patient stabilized and maybe as you move toward perhaps a mobility rehab picture down the road? Mm-hmm. For nutrition, um, if there's minimal inotrope needs, there isn't any other reason that you shouldn't feed the patient such as an abdominal process or a GI bleed, then I'll start to at least trophically feed them early, day one maybe. We have the luxury of pulsatile flow on VV, right? So we have normal splanchnic, systolic, and diastolic perfusion. And so I think it's helpful to get the gut going and participating as soon as possible. A you know quick tip about that is if you can get the feeding tube in before you cannulate them, then you don't have to worry about trying to place that wire systemically anticoagulated. Sometimes that doesn't always happen, and that's okay. But if you need to place the tube after you're on pump and, and anticoagulated, then ensuring you have a, a very experienced nurse doing it. Sometimes I'll even do it around you know a, a scheduled platelet transfusion just so they're getting a little bit of extra support there to try to avoid bleeding because GI bleeding on ECMO is not fun. And on a few occasions, it's perhaps been related to feeding tubes either coming in, coming out, or being manipulated. So we want to try to avoid that as best you can. I'll say a fun caveat is if you get to wake your patient up and they're safe to swallow, then maybe they can just eat and drink by mouth later in your run. And just also a quick reminder to add a bowel regimen when you start feeding them. Because suppositories and enemas on ECMO are perhaps not your first choice. And a disclaimer is I've never actually done either of those things on ECMO. So We were hearing a lot about rehabbing these patients, extubated, letting the bottle feed. I have a question. I, I imagine this would be a patient population you'd really encourage breast milk or even donor breast milk for these kids when they're on VV, right? We have a great system that has been put in place in this country for supporting breastfeeding. I always tell moms, though, that it's like if pumping and breastfeeding is something you want to do and it's going to enrich your bonding experience and the care of your baby, then absolutely do it. If it's going to stress you out and make an already stressful situation with a sick baby in the hospital worse, then don't do it. We can use donor breast milk also. The donor breast milk system in the U.S. is great. You know, the other issue that I often hear from people is, well, I'm nervous to feed the baby. I'm worried about their gut perfusion because... You know, in neonatology, every disease process is a three-letter acronym. The one we all terrified of is neck. 
And so there's this kind of myth that's been passed down, I think, from generation to generation that if anything's bad with the baby, stop the feeds because it means they have neck. There's good data out there to show that feeding babies on ECMO is really good for them. It prevents gut villus atrophy. It actually decreases their time to full feeds after ECMO. And so the benefits of feeding the gut and using the gut over just doing TPN is quite significant. Also, the gut is a lot smarter than I am. And I can play with the TPN software and put a dash of sodium in here, a little bit of potassium, protein of this, and lipids of that. The gut is a lot smarter than I am. The gut is going to do a much better job of getting those nutrients and using them. Obviously, there's a place for TPN, but I think we've successfully seen that you can feed babies enterally on ECMO. Very fair. How do you start to approach the sedation? And a very specific question is... Do you use fentanyl or, in your experience, does it bind the oxygen here? Oh, gosh, your controversial question. So sedation and anxiolysis on ECMO can be difficult. And it often is because they're on usually very high sedatives and neuromuscular blockade commonly going into cannulation. And so all of this is complicated by the fact that there is a lot of angst by family. There is concern by bedside staff who are sitting with them about the safety of this cannula. And that is absolutely a very important thing. However, we can safely achieve waking up and having a cannula that stays in place. So the first thing when you think about, can I wake up this patient? Can I wean this patient? Is, are they on or off their neuromuscular blockade? So you've got to get that off first. And commonly that's one big step to figuring out how to support your patient. And so as they start to move around, sometimes their oxygen demand will go up. And that's pretty normal, right? So as you're trying to identify first if they can get off the neuromuscular blockade, you monitor their support and their oxygen requirements coming off. And if they do okay, great. You can move on to the next step of weaning your sedation. If they're having a little bit of trouble, then you need to kind of go back to some basics of ECMO troubleshooting. So is your flow where you want it to be? And if not, are there ways to augment that? Meaning, do they need a little bit more volume? Or are you going to be limited by the size of their cannula? What's their hemoglobin? So super basic, right? Like first year fellowship, what's your oxygen content? And that affects your oxygen delivery. And so that is really important. And so while we often utilize transfusion sparing strategies in our general ICU population, if we're talking about supporting a patient on ECMO, the difference between a hemoglobin of seven and nine may be the difference between you being able to wake your patient up or not. And so I certainly don't need a crit of 40, but the difference between 30 and 35 may be really helpful when you're in this phase of how can I fully support my patient and allow them to wake up. So then we're talking about the sedatives themselves. Age is a big factor. So do you have a two-year-old or do you have a teenager that you can talk to rationally? And so you may need some really basic things like child life or a sitter or their parent to sit with them. And, you know, what are their movies do they like? What are the things they like to play with? What do they like to do? Because trying to keep a two-year-old awake in bed with their cannula is a bit more challenging than a teenager. So anticipating some of those things is really helpful. And then as far as fentanyl versus morphine, I will tell you that In different units in our hospital, people believe different things. I think the difference between fentanyl and morphine is less so with our newer oxygenators and certainly can be overcome with either doses of either one of them or augmentation of other anxiolytics. So 
I don't think people should get too hung up on which one they're using and, and do I need to switch. Whatever works best for the patient is fine. So if fentanyl or morphine is working for your patient, great. I think it's okay to continue to use it. Once your patient is off neuromuscular blockade and you've been able to start to decrease your drips, how do you decide if your patient is going to be wakeful enough to either extubate or start participating in mobility? And so first thing is you want to get them to spontaneously breathe. And so that's kind of the next step. So get off neuromuscular blockade, wean your sedatives, get to a point where the patient is spontaneously breathing. And if you're having trouble getting to that phase, I always think about, you know, the high complexity of these ECMO patients, but in that space, I think about what are the basics? So is your patient sleeping? Are they delirious? Can we get their sleep-wake cycle a little bit better so they're not so maybe wild at night or, you know, being able to be more participatory during the day? And as I mentioned, are they delirious? Or are there things we can do to help with that, like weaning their benzos or providing other medications that help with delirium? Are they an older child and you can tell for sure that they've got an anxiety component? So a lot of our kids these days, right, have some mental health issues coming into the ICU. So those aren't going to go away when they're on ECMO. And certainly some will develop new mental health needs. I think I might, if I was in that situation, need help with anxiety and, and just fear. And so having our psychiatrists and psychologists come see these patients. So you're like, oh, I cannulated ECMO yesterday. Let me call the psychologist. Isn't always people's first thought. But it is extremely important when you're talking about getting a patient to the place where they are able to be awake and we can, you know, help them with that component of it. And then as I mentioned before, you know, do you have a child life or somebody else who can come in and help with the patient to do age appropriate activities? John, how about you? Start the rehab stuff early. PT, OT, stretching, music therapy, massage therapy. I tell parents, your kids, your babies can hear you, read to the babies, hold their hand. And you really just kind of wait. The lungs will clear on their own. It just takes time. And it's hard to wait sometimes. Mm. It really is. When you think about these patients, is there a difference in your mind when you're trying to be a steward of sedation and move towards early mobility between this is likely going to be a short run and this is definitely going to be a long run. I need them to be like a home transplant candidate. Mm -hmm. I do think there's a difference there. So If I'm in early days and, well, if I'm in early days and the lungs are completely consolidated and the airways look pretty clear, but they are just, as I like to say, they're just bricks in there, then I'm going to work towards kind of the slow process of weaning the sedation and weaning the neuromuscular blockade off and waking them up versus if they are a patient who the lungs don't fully collapse when I put them on low vent settings and I don't need as much FiO2 and I don't need as much sweep, then I think, well, maybe this will be a shorter run on the order of, you know, one to two weeks, then we may not push them to extubate. We may just because it's comfortable, more comfortable for the patient, but the variety, or I guess the approach to, you know, aggressiveness on pushing towards extubation and weeding things off, I think is important for kids who you think are going to be on for a longer period of time, because the longer they stay and sit in bed and decondition, the worse off they're going to be, in my opinion. That's so, so incredibly helpful. And thank you for listening to this episode of Pete's Crit. Please remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as a replacement for medical advice. It's also worth noting that the views expressed during this episode by me, Zach, and our guests are our own and do not reflect the official position of our institutions. 
If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at pedscritpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to help support the production of Peds Crit, you can find us on Venmo and Patreon. We've also had some light merch made in the form of Peds Crit laptop stickers. And if you include a mailing address with any contribution, we would be so excited to send you one. Thank you again for listening. You know what, Zach? What's that? You know what I'm thinking about? If I ever need ECMO, you fly me right to Kansas City. You're an adult. They're not going to take you there. Yeah. <laughs>